morning. Scripture this morning will be from Romans chapter 5, and we'll read verses 6 through 10. And it reads, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For for when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Maybe see Thank you, Daniel, for reading our scripture this morning, and Jonathan for leading us in those beautiful songs, and I'm very grateful for you and your presence today, and we're very happy that we can be together and worship in a beautiful place and, and a very safe place and comfortable place. We're very grateful that you're here today and encourage you to be back with us tonight at 6 o'clock. Uh, I made mention of this in the Sunday morning Bible class. I make brief mention of it here today about the brochures that you saw as you came in from the foyer. Take you several brochures and give them to friends, mail them to neighbors and acquaintances, which advertises our Searching the Scriptures Forum, September the 11th, 12th, and 13th. Uh, The brochure gives the questions and the one who will answer the questions and so I hope that you will take this as you have before you, the format of the forum for this year. It's always kind of an exciting time for us here at Broadway when we have this opportunity to study questions which you opposed and have these uh, very fine gospel preachers come and lend themselves to the answers. So please take several of the brochures, notice those as you go out, invite others to come, and we want to enjoy the time that we have together in study and fellowship and worship to God Almighty. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, you have one of my favorite passages of Scripture regarding the love of God. Now I know you're probably thinking of John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And that's one of my favorite passages too. But I, when I talk about love and I think about love and I study about it from the pages of the Bible, I have to think about Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. And I want to talk a little bit about love today. I won't be able to say all that I'd like to about the matter. It's so misused, the word, and the concept is so misunderstood. Let's spend a little time today studying about what the Bible says about love. I'm not talking today about the emotional kind of love that the world tries to foster and teach us about, but I'm talking more about what does the Bible say about love and what kind of love should we have one for the other. I read this uh, statement, this girl broke up with her boyfriend. Dear Sam, it was the biggest mistake of my life when I broke up with you. I regret it more and more, more than words can say. Please take me back. I love you, I love you, I love you. Signed, Betty Sue. P.S. Congratulations on winning the state lottery. Well... (laughs) sometimes love comes out that way. It's more of an emotion. It's kind of a a hypocritical kind of feeling that we sometimes have. 
The word is, a, is misused and the word is abused. But we want to see what love really is from the standpoint of the Word of God. Sometimes it's hard to define love. I suppose 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is probably the best chapter in all the Bible that actually defines it for us. Uh, yet when the Sunday school teacher asks his class or her class, now who can define love? No one was able to raise their hand. But then she asked her students, now who has ever seen love? And every hand went up in the class. Yes, it may be hard for us really to put a definition to the matter, but we've seen it so many times. We know it when we see it. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus talked about this great subject, and it causes me pause to think about this wonderful matter. In verse 37, you'll recognize the, vo- the, vo- the verse. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You see, they were trying to trap Jesus in what he had to say. And so they asked him this rather tricky question, what's the greatest commandment? And I don't know what I would have said. I wouldn't know what to say. But Jesus always knew just exactly what to say and how to say it. He said, now this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Mark and Luke would record this incident. Luke and Mark would add the word strength there. Love God with all your heart, your soul, all your mind, and your strength. The second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And on this hangs all the law and the prophets. He's saying this matter of loving God supremely. And that's how I choose to say it because it helps me remember this great verse I'm called upon to love. I'm called upon to love God supremely and not to allow anything to come between me and my love for God. And I'm to love Him with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind, with all my strength. Just think about that. Everything that I've got and all of my being is to be devoted to the love of God. I'm to love Him supremely. And I'm not allowed to let anything interfere with that great love that I have for God. When you love someone, you want to do what's best for them. You have their interest in your heart. And when that Bible writer recorded the statement of Jesus, love God supremely, he's saying there, you want the best for God. And you want His interest in your heart. And you want to do what God has told you to do and live the way God has told you to live. I see, I think, a little better how Jesus say, on this hangs all the law and the prophets. We could go on and say, on this hangs all the New Testament as well. To love God supremely. Put Him in my heart and put Him in my mind. Use the best my mind has got. To love God. Use the best my body has got. Put my heart into it, my soul, my strength, all the strength that I have. I love God. I put Him first and foremost in my life. There's a lot to this matter of the biblical view of love. Now, I'm not trying to talk today so much about an emotional kind of love, which the world tries to teach, but I'm trying to study today what the Bible says about love. And one of the first things I'll learn is that love is a choice. I make that choice. It's not a kind of mammy yokum double whammy type of thing that hits you. 
Now, you all don't know what I'm talking about with that illustration, unless you grew up reading Little Abner and Dogpatch and Mammy Yoakum, you wouldn't know about a Mammy Yoakum double whammy. But that's what love is to the world that we live in. It sort of hits you out of the clear blue sky like a bolt of lightning. You don't know anything about it. It's got you before you realize it. The biblical view of love, it's a choice that we make. It's a volitional choice. We choose to love. We love this one. We may not have an emotional feeling about the matter, but it's very clear that we love that individual or that group and we choose to do so. I choose to love. You can choose to hate. You can choose to be filled with envy. You can choose to be filled with bitterness. I choose to love. In Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul was talking about the love that he had for that congregation. It's a beautiful sentiment which he expresses beginning in verse 9 of the first chapter. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's a point or two here we dare not miss. Speaking to a congregation that he truly loved, he talked about the past. In the first chapter, he spoke briefly about the present. But then by this point of the paragraph, he's talking about the future. And it is my prayer that your love may abound, that you will grow in this love. Choose to grow in love more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, discernment means judgment. Choose love and grow in your knowledge about these matters so that you can make good decisions, which is what judgment or discernment really means in the passage. You choose love and you grow in the knowledge of the matter so that you'll be able to make the right choices. Now, we might ask the question today, how many of us have made wrong choices in life? And I think every one of us have to raise our hand. But if we choose love, then, of course, we will grow in our knowledge of God and God's Word and be able to have a proper discernment about us, make proper choices based on God's Word. Choose the good and leave the bad alone. Follow what is right rather than follow what is wrong. In other words, we need to take a lot of time and just give serious look at God. Because we love Him. And we've made that choice. And we want to know what God wants us to do. We need to take time and take a serious look at Christ And what Christ has done on that cross. Because we chose to love him. And we want to know what Christ wants us to do. It would be a very serious matter for us. Perhaps even a life changing matter. If we take some serious looks 
at the Bible, the Word of God. We choose to love it. It's not a slurpy, emotional type of love that the Bible is talking about. It's talking about a choice that we make. We choose to love God and put Him first and foremost in our life and to love Christ, our Lord and Savior, raised from the dead. And the Bible, the Word of God, the holy and inspired Word of God, we make that choice. That way as we grow in knowledge, we can make good decisions because we chose love. Henry Ward Beecher, denominational preacher, years gone by, made a statement I thought was pretty insightful. I never knew how to worship until I knew how to love. And I thought, you know, that's a pretty insightful statement because when you really love God with all your heart and your mind and your strength, your soul... It changes your worship, doesn't it? And when you really choose love, the kind of love the Bible teaches, it changes your prayer life. Your prayer life is richer and deeper and more sincere. It's not a shallowy, surfacey kind of rote memorization as it comes from the depth of our heart. And when we commune with the Lord on the first day of the week, Because of love in our hearts, the choice which we've made, it makes that matter even deeper and more spiritually satisfying and fulfilling. And I'd love to talk more about that choice, but I want to talk about this very important matter. It's a verb. And I think sometimes we miss that particular point in the discussion. Love is a verb. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18 He makes this point rather clear for us. But this we know, or by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I'm reading this out of the Bible here. It's in 1 John chapter 3. I'm in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, it's an action word. And it's something that we need to consider very carefully. It's an easy thing for us to say, yeah, I love that person. And it's quite another thing for us to put that into action and actually show the kind of love that we have. It's going to be a hard, convincing thing. For us to say, well, I love you, man, and yet not help that man with the things that he really needs, but just turn a deaf eye and a deaf ear to him. Jesus wasn't that way. When Jesus saw people, he healed the sick. He was active in their lives. He fed the hungry. He raised the dead. He touched the lepers. He listened to the children. He ate with the sinners. He was part of their life. He was readily accessible. And that's part of what makes Jesus such the lovely character that he is in the pages of the Bible. Do you doubt that? Turn to Mark chapter, Matthew chapter 8. There's an incident in the life of the Lord that I, I just will never forget. And here is the life of a leper. Jesus heals that leper. You know, well, of course, Jesus healed the lepers, but we need to stop and think for a minute what that meant. Leprosy was a dreaded disease. It was a terrible thing. 
And in that, it was such a situation that you didn't want to have anything to do with the leper. Uh, The skin actually fell from the bone. It would deteriorate, and it would fall apart. It was a loathsome, despicable type of disease, and people faced that. There was no cure for leprosy. It was just the outcome for the rest of their lives to face that. And a leper, when he would come, he would put his hands over his mouth, and he would say, unclean, unclean. And that gave people announcement and warning, stay away from me, I'm a leper. He couldn't go to the temple. He couldn't go to the synagogue to worship and to pray. He was an outcast in society. Why, the Pharisees would pick up rocks and throw at them so that they would go the other way. Get out of here, you're a leper. We don't want to have anything to do with you. The leper comes to Jesus. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. He touched the leper. Now the Pharisees would throw rocks at the lepers. Get him out of the way. Unclean, unclean, stay away from me. Jesus touched the man saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. That's love in action. That's real love. It's not a sentimental kind of emotional mentality. It's actually helping an individual who needs help. Love is a verb. It's not just a matter of saying, Well, I really love you. This is a situation in the life of Christ where he went about healing that man and giving him what he really needed. And that was being cleansed from his leprosy. And only God could do that. Only God could cleanse him. And immediately, the scripture says, he was cleansed. A fellow came up to a swollen river. He was in the Continental Army. And the rest of them were crossing the river. And he had no way to cross. And he would ask this person... Hey, let me get behind you on horseback and let's swim across the river. And this guy would say, no. And he said to another, let me ride across the river on horseback with you so I can get across with the rest of it. And this guy said, no. And he came to one particular man. He said, sir, will you let me ride across that river with you? And he said, yes, I will. And he reached his hand down and helped him up on the back of the saddle. And together they swam the river. And as they got on the other side, he let him down, and he rode off on horseback. And one of the soldiers said, do you know who that was? That was George Washington. Why did you ask George Washington for a ride across the river? He said, because he had a yes face. He had a face about him that wanted to help. Do we have a yes face? A face where we actually help people? and are concerned about them? Or do we have a no face? I confess, I have to work on this myself. I have to work on the problem of having a yes face. I'm fearful sometimes I have a no face. No, I don't want to help. I'm busy right now. I'm not going to take action here to help you. Let me think about this for a minute with you. This matter of biblical love. A yes face is a person who says, I love you enough 
to help you with what you need. And you know what that might mean? That might mean teaching that person the Word of God. How could I know the truth and turn around and say to that person, I'm too busy to help you with God's Word? I know you need it. And I know you don't understand it. But I'm too busy. I'm a busy man here. Hey, I'm busy. I'm busy doing this and I'm busy doing that. And you want me to take time out to help you with the Word of God? Why, that's a very unloving attitude to have. It's unkind and it's even cruel. That I could know that there are souls tripping along life's pathway, headed for hell, and I stand back and do nothing about it? Love is a verb. Jesus touched the man. Nobody else would do it. He touched the leper and immediately healed him with miraculous power because he was the Son of God. And I have that story in the pages of my Bible. And I don't tell anybody about that. Jesus will save you. But you need to repent of your sins like Jesus said. I tell you nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You need to confess your faith in Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Well, you need to be immersed in water full of the remission of sins because that's what Jesus said. Mark chapter 16, 15, and 16, and any number of passages. And for me to know that and understand it as the truth and know that that person needs that and I just turn around and walk the other way, knowing what the outcome is going to be, I don't help that person. That's not a loving thing to do. That's an unkind thing to do. Or... Here's a fellow that's involved in error. And it's a doctrinal issue. If he or she continues down that path, they're going to lose their soul's salvation. Perhaps they've already done it. They can so embroil themselves in error and false doctrine as to forfeit the grace which God has in store for every one of us and lose the inheritance of eternal life which belongs to every child of God through the grace of God. And the mercy of Jesus Christ. And I sit there and think, nah, I'm not going to bother about getting into that with him. If he continues down that path, he's going to lose his soul over that. If he continues down that path, his worship will be of no value. Useless, worthless, void. Because it is not a worship based on the authority of God. But I don't love that man enough that with kindness of heart try to instruct him from the pages of the Bible. And yet I want to consider myself as a loving individual. Love is a verb, you see. Love is an action word in the pages of the Bible where I try to help that individual. I help him see. Now, a haggle or a wrangle, I'm not talking about that. Somebody says, well, I love to argue. I'm not talking about a haggle. Now, I can haggle with you. In fact, I'm good at it. I'm well trained. I can look for legal loopholes like you can't imagine. But I'm not interested in a haggle. I'm not interested in any kind of legal loophole. I'm not interested in trying to make an end run about what the Word of God says. I simply want to 
understand the Word of God and teach others to do the same, to follow God's Word. Jesus said to the Apostle Peter on the matter of commitment, He says, I want you to feed my sheep. John 21 and 15, when they had finished breaking, Jesus said, breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, see, he used his uh, common name there. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's my subject, love. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. If you really love, then have a commitment about you, dedication, a commitment that begins, but it never ends, a love for the sheep and a desire for the people of God that you continue to love them and dedicate yourself to them. And I think as Jesus would continue that conversation with Peter, Peter gets the point very clearly that love is not only a verb, it's also a commitment, one that we must devote ourselves to and never give up on. In 1 John chapter 4, beautiful passage about love, biblical love, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Carries this on down through about verse 11. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, here it is. We also ought to love one another. That commitment discussion to Peter now comes over to me. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now, love becomes a commitment on my part. A commitment which I begin with, but it never ends. I continue to commit myself to the love of God and God's people and others. Because that's what love is. It's a commitment. Love is patient. It's a patient matter, isn't it? It really helps me understand what the New Testament says about love. First Peter chapter 4, beginning at about verse 8, Above all, he went through a whole series of matters in, in this chapter, and he gets to First Peter 4 and verse 8, and then he says, Above all. And when I see words like that, it just like red flags in front of me. Above all what? And I'm, I need to go back and study those particular matters. Keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, keep loving one another. Keep putting the other's interests ahead of my own. I've said several times, I say again, we're not talking so much about a slurpy, syrupy type of emotional feeling. We're talking about biblical love and what it really means and applying it the best way that we can to our people to ourselves. It means giving and taking. It means being patient one with the other. Sometimes we're going to get on each other's nerves. 
And we're in close proximity with each other. We worship together and we study the Bible together. And we're involved in activities together. Sometimes we come together in a social context. And we, on a very regular basis, come together as brothers and sisters in Christ in worship and in Bible study. And sometimes we're going to rub each other the wrong way. But because I love you, I'm patient. And because you love me, you're patient toward me. You know who's the best kids in the congregation are. They're my kids. My kids are the best kids in the congregation. Even though my kids run through the congregation, my kids do this, my kids do that, I overlook some of that. Now I correct them, and I might even have to scold them. I might even have to punish them as a disciplinary type of action. But I do so because I love them. I'm patient. And I want them to grow, and I want them to mature, and I I want them to have the kind of life and be the kind of person that God wants them to be because I'm patient with them. I don't just go and write them off. All right, you did that, that's it, it's over. Yeah, it's done. Don't be bothering me again, but I'm patient because I love them. And his point is, above all these things, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. No one is in this point trying to say that we compromise with sin. Don't get that idea. No one in this point is trying to say that we sort of gloss over sin and the problems of sin. No, we correct that. We point that out. And we show how that needs to be remedied and repented of. But yet, I'm patient. And it's a terrible thing. When someone gets to the point where they're so calloused and hardened in sin and so steep in sin that the body of Christ has to withdraw its fellowship from that individual because of their waywardness and wickedness. But even then, we do so so that they will repent and come back to the body of Christ faithfully because we love them. And as a last resort, that withdrawal and compliance with the New Testament pattern is reached, but still... It's done out of a desire that they return and repent and live faithfully before God and live with us, encouraging us and us encouraging them because we love them. It's patient. I'm grateful for the patience of God. God's been patient with me. And God has said at that cross, I love you. In spite of your sins, in spite of how you treated me, in spite of how you treated other people, I love you, and my son died on that cross for you. Now you need to repent of your sins out of love and confess your faith in Christ and be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. It's the loving thing for you to do. It's what you need to do. All this was brought about because of God's love for you. That's biblical love and not the love that the world teaches. It's a love in action. Do you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Will you not obey God? What's best for you by obeying the gospel of Christ today? 
I know I'm speaking to a congregation that truly loves God. And you love the Word of God and you love one another. Let us continue in our love for each other and our love for the great work of God. And I admonish you as tenderly as I know how. Prepare yourself for eternity and start today by obeying the gospel of Christ. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.